I'm thankful to be here with you today. Thankful for many things. Um, one thing I'm thankful for is my cell phone and the internet. Uh, our, our printer decided to have to go into an error state this morning, and I couldn't print my notes. Um, I had, didn't have any extra time, so I was able to send my notes into cyberspace, and I've got them on my phone here, so we're okay. <laughs> You're probably not used to seeing me up here this time of day, and I'm not used to seeing you all from this point of view, so that's okay. Um, about a month ago, I shared this message at chapel, um, and I was trying to decide whether or not to develop a new message or share the same one. Um, ended up, I was out of town all last week and just got back on late Thursday, so it worked out well. So I'm just going to I'm gonna recycle the message I shared at chapel about a month ago. So there's about four of you or so that were there for that, so I apologize that you have to hear it again. Um, but that's what we're going to do. So the inspiration uh, for this message, first of all, comes from the Holy Spirit. I give God uh, all credit and honor and glory for everything that I say. I want to honor Him with everything that I say. And then also, uh, inspiration comes specifically from one of my favorite Old Testament stories that I was thinking about and I wanted to share. And then also... Several weeks um, prior to my message at Chapel, Rich had preached over at Chapel, and he had preached about the power of God. Uh, talking about what the power of God is, what it looks like, some things like that. So if I had to give this message a title, I would call it, Dig a Ditch. And what I want to talk about are a few principles of what God's power looks like in our lives. What are some things we should expect? And as Christians, what does the power of God in our lives mean? So just to give you an outline, um, point number one, or principle number one is the basic essence of the gospel. Look to Jesus and you will live. Principle number two is our experience with God's power in our lives doesn't end at salvation. It continues on from there. And principle number three is before God, often before God demonstrates his miraculous power in our lives, he will often ask his followers to take steps of faith and obedience. So we're going to look at each of these and look at a bunch of different Bible passages and talk about these three principles. So, we'll jump right into uh, the Bible. If I could have a couple volunteers to read some verses. Um, first volunteer to read Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9. Anybody? Okay, well, thank you. And the second volunteer to read John 3, 1 through 21. Eric, thank you. Uh, I don't know if uh, everyone can hear you fine from there. If so, that's great. Otherwise, you can come up here. I'm not sure what you all usually do. But Gabriel, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read uh, Numbers 21, 1 through 9. And Eric, you can just follow on right after. Numbers 21, verse 1 through 9. 
the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place is called Hormah. When they, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and water and no water. And this, our soul loves this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from among us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. So it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. John 3, 1-21 Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the, serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, thank you both for reading that. So, remember, point number one is, look to Jesus and you will live. So, in the Old Testament, there was this um, account that Gabriel read of the Israelites and Moses. And they, they had this problem where they were all being bitten by these fiery serpents, and they were dying, it was fatal, it was very painful, um, and they needed, they needed to be saved. So, in foreshadowing Jesus, Moses got this bronze serpent and raised it up on this pole, and it foreshadowed Jesus being raised up on the cross, and the people who looked to that were saved. They were healed. So, very similarly, we have this problem of sin. Sin is poisonous, it, it destroys us, it's deadly, it's fatal, and we need a Savior. Um, and so if we look to Jesus who was raised up on the cross, just as this bronze serpent was raised up on a pole, we shall be saved. So thank God for his provision, for our redemption, um, the fact that we can be reborn, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus and the second passage that Eric read. And this is the, as Christians, this is the very first and probably the most important encounter we have with God's power in our lives. And that's when we come to him and he gives us new life. He, we are reborn into his spirit. Look to Jesus, believe and confess him as your Lord and you will be saved. So principle number two is that our interaction with God's power in our life doesn't end at that point of salvation. It continues on. I'm going to read some verses from John 14. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. John uh, 14, starting at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, verse 12 is the one I really want to zero in on here. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You read verse 12. It kind of strikes me as, I have to look at it twice. Did I read it right? Is that actually what Jesus said? He said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I am doing, but he will also do greater works than these. And uh, that, that just that strikes me wrong. Is Jesus saying that we're going to be greater than he was? Well, I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. He's not saying that we are going to be greater than him, but he says that his followers will do greater works than those that he did. And I'm not sure what all exactly that means. You know, it's... It, his followers did do miracles in his name. Um, we're, we're doing more works because we're, we have many more people and we're spreading the gospel throughout the whole world. So regardless of what that means, um, exact, I, don't, I don't know all the doctrinal ramifications of what that means. But regardless, it certainly means at least one thing, and that is after salvation, God absolutely expects us to move on to greater works. It doesn't end at salvation. That's principle number two. After salvation, God will call you to greater works. Through him, of course. It's not through our own. Um, it's all through through Jesus, through his redemptive power, through the Holy Spirit, which God gave us and put inside of us. God calls us on to greater works. And, uh, you know, by, by greater things, I, don't I don't also don't mean um, economic and social success. I don't mean greatness by what our country calls great or what our country calls success. I'm talking about what God, what is great in the eyes of God. So, principle number three. Before demonstrating his miraculous power in our lives, in the lives of his believers, God will often call us to take steps of faith and obedience. And we'll spend most of our time on this principle. Principle number three. And I want to look at the life of Elisha. Look at a couple different things about the life of Elisha. Let's start by going to 1 Kings 19. So in the Old Testament, there were many prophets, and one of the most known prophets was Elijah. Um, he had the major uh, standoff against the prophets of Baal on, on the mountain, and he had held off the rain for a long time, and then... Um, called fire down from heaven to consume the altar he built before God. And the prophets of Baal had tried for many hours to try to do the same thing, but they could not. And then after that, um, Elijah called rain from heaven. So Elijah is probably more well-known than Elisha, but Elisha was the man who was Elijah's servant for a while. And then after Elijah left, Elisha took over um, as a prophet of God and the nation of Israel. So let's look at 1 Kings 19, starting at verse, chapter 19, starting at verse 19. This is the call of Elisha. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. 
Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back then, for what, I ha- what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So this is the call of Elisha. Elijah went, found him, called him, and Elisha then followed him. His first reaction was kind of a hesitation. He was like, let me go kiss my father and my mother and then I'll I'll follow you. And uh, Elijah's response doesn't make total sense um, to me, but I think what he's saying is here is, uh, go ahead, do what you need to do, but the call of the Lord is here. I'll be waiting for you. The 12 yoke of oxen is kind of interesting. Um, I did a little reading about that, and it's not quite clear if he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen himself, because that would be a lot of oxen to pull one plow. I'm not sure if that's exactly what he was doing. Some people think it means, if, if you look at it closely, it says he was with the 12th pair, the 12th yoke. So it sort of means that maybe there were 12 sets of oxen, and there were 11 other people beside him that are plowing, and he was just with the 12th. That makes sense. Um, or regardless, it was a pretty big field operation going on there, and uh, he left what he was doing. He, he took the oxen. He used the yoke to make a fire. He uh, said he boiled the oxen, gave them to people to eat, and then he left. So he, you know, if you're, uh, an analogy for today was he sold his tractor, gave his money away, and left. Uh, that's what he did. He dropped everything and followed Elijah. So at this point, notice that Elijah hadn't given Elisha any really details of his calling. Um, that's, that's often how God worked in the Bible. The people that were called weren't given a lot of details about their calling. They were just called and asked to take some steps of simple faith and obedience. For example, in Genesis 12, 12 verses 1 through 4, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord told him. He didn't know where he was going. God said, leave, go to the place which I will show you later. And Abram went. In Matthew 4, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus said, come, follow me. I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. God may not give us details of our calling. He may not even expect us to understand our calling. But when he calls, he wants us to take simple steps of faith and obedience, as Elisha did, as uh, Abram and the disciples did. Okay, turn to 2 Kings 3. We'll start at verse 1. This is the uh, Old Testament Bible story I told you about. It's uh, one of my favorites. 
in the Old Testament. Second Kings 3, starting at verse 1. In the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned twelve years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and, had, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the king, so King Jehoram, marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go to battle? Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Je Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then, none of, then one, of the, one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. So this um, officer, or this servant, said, they know of Elisha. He's sort of Elijah's water boy. At that time, he wasn't as well known as Elijah yet. So they called Elisha, and verse 13, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall see not wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water. So you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and every and fell every, every and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering, offer, uh, the next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When the Moabites heard 
that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were dried up and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning, the sun shone on the water. The Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites. So they fled before them, and they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they basically had the victory. Does someone have uh, King James Version of this passage? Could you read verses um, 15 through 17? Okay, thanks. I, I just realized that uh, my ESV translation left out the key <laughs> phrase of my message. And that is, the word of the Lord was, make this valley full of ditches. And I didn't realize it, but the ESV doesn't have that in there. So thanks for reading the King James. So this is an interesting story. Um, it's not real well known. It's not the, uh, you probably won't find this story in a lot of children's Bible story books and that sort of thing. It's not one of the more famous ones. Um, but it's interesting. Here you have an alliance of three kings. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. So the king of Israel, at this time the, the Israelite nation was separated into the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And the king of Israel at the time was Jehoram, and he was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. So earlier in chapter 3, it mentions that he was an evil king, um, although he did not worship the false god Baal as his parents have. He didn't set an altar up to Baal as, as they had, and maybe that's partly because of the big showdown that Elijah had had with the prophets of Baal. Um, but it does reference that he still led the kingdom in sin. So he was not a good king, even though he did not worship Baal. And then the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, was Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is mentioned as, you know, one of the, the better kings of Judah. Um, he was a, a godly king for the most part, even though he had entered into this questionable alliance with these other kings. And then also the king of Edom. Edom was normally an enemy of the Israelites. However, they made, these three kings made an alliance to fight a common enemy, Moab. And Moab had been under submission to the, the, the nation of Israel, and they were scheduled to give them um, uh, tributes and taxes, things like that. So it says they were scheduled to deliver 100,000 lambs and wool of 100,000 rams. So a pretty significant tribute. But since Ahab had recently died, the king of Moab decided, okay, now's my chance. I'm going to break off this submission. I'm not going to give them these tributes. I can't afford it. I don't want to do it. And so he was going to war with the king of Israel. And the Bible says that they were gaining strength and actually everyone was starting to sort of be afraid of these Moabites. So because of that, uh, Jehoram decided he needed to form this alliance. He needed to muster the troops, get a bunch of people together, and go take care of these Moabites. So that's what this alliance was for. And Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom agreed to this. And in verse 
8, Jehoram, Jehoshaphat asked Jehoram, how are we going to march out there? Which way, which way shall we go? And Jehoram says, we'll go by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So that's, that was the path that they were going to march. And it says they marched for seven days, I think. Yeah, so they marched seven days. And then they got into a situation. They ran out of water. So they had marched for seven days. The troops ran out of water. They didn't have water for their animals. And I don't know if they were expecting water in the wilderness of Edom. It said they were near a dry stream bed or a river bed. Maybe they expected water to be there, and that was sort of their refill point. But when they got there, there was no water. There must have been a drought or something like that. And they were in some serious trouble because they had traveled seven days. They ran out, and there was no water at the refill point. And the only thing ahead of them was the Moabite army, and they didn't have time to go back. How long can you last without water? Three days or so, something like that. And they had traveled seven days and were out. So they were in a pretty bad situation. They had all these armies, uh, you know, so many men. They had all these animals. And if something didn't happen pretty quick, they were going to be in some serious trouble, either fighting the Moabites right away without water or trying to go get some water somewhere else where they didn't know where it was and they may die from thirst on the way there. Do you know what it's like to be thirsty? Like really, really thirsty? Think about the thirstiest you've ever been. What does that feel like? It starts to affect your mind, right? You've got to do anything you can to get water. I'll, I'll, I'll share with you the story of when I think I was the most thirsty I've ever been. Um, I think it was the first summer I lived here, and I was staying at Dan and Dan's house at the time. And I had a day off work or something like that. It was during the summer, so I didn't have class. And I decided I was going to go fishing. And years ago, when I was 16, I had been on a seven-day canoe trip down the James River. And um, I forget where we started, but we took out um, northwest of, I think it's northwest, north of Lynchburg, a little ways, about half an hour or so. There was this spot up there that we caught a lot of nice fish, and I wanted to go, I've always wanted to go back to that spot. So, being not far from there, I thought, okay, I'm going to take the day, at least part of the day, go fishing. And um, the spot is pretty remote. It's kind of in the middle of the nowhere. There's a big cliff on the one side of the river, and the other side, it's just out in the middle of nowhere. And I thought I could probably park at this one place. I was looking at, you know, Google Maps and everything, planning my, my trek. And I thought I could park and then walk back up to the place, fish for a while, and come back, doing about six hours or so. So uh, I, I did tell Jeff where I was going. Um, I told him about what time I thought I would be back. I took a lunch with me. I took two bottles of water. Um, but I, I, looking back, I was, it was not a very wise decision. I didn't know what I was getting into. I had never trekked through this part of the woods before, and I didn't take enough stuff with me. And well, anyway, you'll find out. So I, to get there, I parked. I walked across this bridge across the James River. And at this point, this is actually where the Appalachian Trail um, comes through that area. So I followed the Appalachian Trail along the river up to a point for about a mile. And then the Appalachian Trail turns away from the river and goes somewhere else. But at that point, I have to climb up this ridge and follow the ridge along for a while and then find a way down. And then I'm at basically at the fishing spot I wanted to be at. So I left the trail. I climbed up this ridge. I got to the top. And then I 
On the right side of me is the river, but it's also mostly just sheer rock cliff for a little while. So I, I walk along the ridge until I find a spot where it sort of smooths out a little bit, and I think I can make it down to the river without much trouble. So I, I make it down. I fish for a while. I catch some good fish. It was a happy day. Had my lunch. Um, the hike to that point had made me thirsty, so I had already finished one of the bottles of water. I, fi I fished for a while, ate my lunch, finished the other bottle of water, bottle of water while I was eating lunch, and thought, you know, I, I don't know what time it is. I should probably go back. And at this point, my phone had died, so I broke most of the survival rules that you would read in a book. Um, no extra water. I did not have good hiking shoes, and uh, no cell phone, no form of communication. The only rule, the only survival rule I did not break was that I did tell someone where I was going. That was the only rule I didn't break. So I decided to head back, and if you remember, I have to get back up on top of this ridge. So I walk, I'm walking back the river, along the river a little ways, fishing as I go, and all of a sudden I come up against this sheer rock wall that extends all the way out into the river. And I realized I had missed my turn to get back up on top of the ridge. And it was already, you know, sort of, it was pushing into the afternoon. And had I not had my fishing equipment with me, I probably would have just dived in the river and swum, swum around this rock wall. But I didn't want to lose all my fishing stuff. So I start backtracking. And I backtrack a little ways. And I'm at a point where I think I can probably make it up the ridge. So I start climbing. And it turns out I had turned too soon. And it was really steep, and also there was this really thick brush that I had to fight my way through. And if you've ever tried to walk through brush with two fishing rods, it is not fun. You have to hold your rods way up in the air, and I've also got my fishing bag and stuff, and I'm trying to fight my way through the brush, and I am getting really tired and really thirsty. Well, I finally make it back up to the top of the ridge. And I still have about two miles of a hike left, so I start walking. And when I finally get back to the Appalachian Trail Point, there is a stream right there. And by then, I just drop all my stuff, fall to my knees, and start drinking from the mountain stream because I am so thirsty. And that's what I'm saying. You know, my common sense told me, don't drink from that water. You don't know what is in there. But I couldn't help it. I was too thirsty. So that's what it's like to be thirsty. And these guys, this was just, I mean, I was hiking several hours without water. These guys had been out there for who knows how long without water. Um, and they were really, really thirsty. And I'm sure many of them thought, this is it. We're not going to make it home. So anyway, the one godly king, Jehoshaphat says, is there not a servant of the Lord here that we can talk to about this problem? So this is uh, another sub-principle, is that trouble will often make us look to God, right? If we know God, we'll run into trouble. Even if we've been neglecting God up until that point, trouble brings us back to God. And you notice the ungodly king, uh, Jehoram, said... In verse... he says, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So the, the king of Israel, the wicked king of Israel, still 
turned to God, but his first reaction was to blame God for getting them into this situation. And then Elisha does come, and he sees this evil king of Israel. He sees this evil king of Edom, and he sees this godly king Jehoshaphat. And Elisha's first instinct, or his first reaction is it's kind of angry. Um, it's a little bit, why are you bothering me? And he said, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat here, I wouldn't speak to you. I wouldn't look at you. I would just walk away. So Elisha is a little bit angry that they called him here because of you know they would, only one of them was a godly king. But he says, because of Jehoshaphat, um, I will speak with you. So, these three kings are probably relieved that Elisha is not going to leave them there alone. Elisha is going to perform some miracle. He's going to call some rain down from heaven, give them water, save them. What does Elisha do? He says, the ESV says, he says, bring me a musician. I think the KJV says, bring me a minstrel. What is going on here? So these three kings are gathered together. They call Elisha in. They're, they're great. You know, they're going to be saved. Elisha's going to perform a miracle, give them water. And Elisha is calling for a musician, some background music. What is going on? Well, this is actually sort of an interesting principle here. Um, it's sort of a side, a side rabbit trail, but we'll go down it. And Elisha knows that music has a spiritual effect on us. And he knew that to get his spirit in better tune with the spirit of God for the message that God had to deliver him, he needed to get his spirit in a place where he could commune with God. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does that, does that, uh, can you relate to that? I'm not a musical person. I'm not musically talented. Uh, I don't really know much about music at all, but I can at least relate to Elisha here. Um, this morning when we were singing uh, Gentle Holy Spirit, um, and then when Derek led the song, Holy, 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 my spirit was drawn to worship. I don't know about yours, but that's, I think that's what Elijah, Elisha is talking about here. He knows that music will help get his spirit in a place where he can commune with God. This is not an uncommon uh, principle in the Old Testament. Um, for example, the King Saul, um, in the Old Testament, it said a, an evil spirit was bothering him and he called for David to play music and the evil spirit from him. Music has a, a spiritual effect on us. We don't um, use music a lot as uh, background accompaniment for different events, but we do a few. For example, um, weddings. Usually when the wedding party is approaching the front, there's usually some singing or some music playing. Um, and it would just, it would be different if when the bride walks down the center of the aisle, if there's no singing or uh, no music at all through the service. It adds a, a spiritual effect to the service. Um, revival meetings, Just As I Am, that song that's often played during altar calls and stuff like that, uh, it would be different. Music has a spiritual effect on us. And I think that's what's going on here. And uh, Elisha may have been you know, a little angry at the situation. He may have been a little worked up. And so he maybe he knew that his his spirit and his mind were not were not right to receive a word from God. So the musician comes, he's playing some background music, and then it says that 
the word of the Lord came to Elisha, and he delivered the word of the Lord, and the ESV doesn't say it. But the first thing he says in the KJV is, make this valley full of ditches. Again, that's a little strange. Um, Maybe, you know, the the kings may have been expecting a miracle. Uh, Water to appear in the ground, rain to fall down. I don't know what they were expecting, but Elisha says, this is the word of the Lord. Make this valley full of ditches. And if you're, if those soldiers were anything like me, they were probably a little incredulous. They probably started grumbling a little bit. We were out here dying of thirst, been marching for a long time, and you're telling us to dig ditches? That's not what I want to hear. So the third principle here is, before God performs his miraculous work that only he can do, he may ask you as his follower to take some simple steps of faith and obedience, like digging a ditch. There are other examples of this in the Bible. For example, 1 Corinthians says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. So only God could send the water to these men out there, but he asked them to first dig a ditch in preparation for that. Only God can send you water, but he may ask you to first dig a ditch. So I want to encourage each of you with that thought. I don't know what all God has you working on. I don't know what all he is asking you to labor on. I don't know what your calling is. And maybe sometimes the work he asks you to do may not make sense. Maybe it's humbling work. Maybe it's hard work. But know this, that God will surely, God is the only person who can send the water. Only he can do the miraculous. But he may ask you to do some of the digging first. And one of the reasons I love this Bible story is, I don't know what kind of ditches they dug that night. They only had one night, so I'm sure they didn't make a complex irrigation system or anything like that. But it says the next morning God sent water. Um, it said they, they saw neither wind nor rain, but he made that, that those pools and those ditches and that dry stream bed full of water. God came through for them and performed the miraculous and gave them the victory. Gave them water and the victory. So the reason that this is one of my favorite Bible stories is because I heard it um, at a time in my life where I really needed to hear it. It was, it was very instrumental for me. And I was a sophomore in school at Liberty, and I was getting really busy. My freshman year was kind of easy, um, but during my sophomore year, I started working part-time to help with living expenses. And I was right in the middle of integral calculus and physics and some engineering courses, and I had I had this one uh, academic scholarship that 
um, was contingent on me keeping a certain GPA in school. And I was a little stressed out that I might let my grades slip and I was going to lose this scholarship. And yeah, I was, I was so stressed out. You know, what am I going to do if I do happen to lose it? Uh, am, I, am I going to be able to continue school? Will I have to figure out something else? And it was right in the middle of this that I uh, read this story. And I don't remember if it was a devotional or something like that. But I heard this story, and um, I, I believe that God was telling me that, Eric, you need to just continue taking steps of faith. Do what you can, but only God can send the rain. Only God can provide true provision. And I didn't always think I was going to make it through this, the college years, uh, but I, I did thanks to God's grace, his provision, uh, many avenues of provision. And because of that, it's, it's a very personal story to me, and that's, that's why it's one of my favorites. So it's one thing to say that we have faith in God. It's another thing to take small steps of faith. The Bible is so full of times where God asked his followers to take steps of faith like this. Jesus told Peter to step out of the boat in the middle of a storm. God asked Abram to leave his family and home. Later, he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. God asked Moses to lead the Israelite nation out of Egypt. God asked Joshua to lead the Israelites into Canaan and march around Jericho seven days. God told Gideon to lead 300 men against 130,000. Elisha told Naaman to dunk seven times in the river to be healed of his leprosy. Many, many examples of God first asking his followers to take simple steps of faith, to dig a simple ditch, and then God performing the miraculous. Um, in conclusion, these were the three principles I wanted to leave with you for what you should expect as a follower of God and the way he interacts with your, with your life and the way you, sh you should see his power. The first is look to Jesus and you will be healed. That's the first step. It doesn't end there, though. Jesus said that all those who believe in him because of him and through him will go on to do greater things. So God's power doesn't end at salvation. It continues on. Expect it to continue on. And lastly, God will ask you to take steps of faith. He'll ask you to plant seeds. He'll ask you to water plants. He'll ask you to dig ditches. He'll ask you to take steps of faith. But only he can give the increase. Only he can give the growth. Only he can provide the water. So I just want to leave that encouragement with you no matter what you find yourself working on right now, whatever God is asking you to work on, just keep on. Um, know that it, it is hard, humbling work. It's steps of faith. Um, but if God is asking you to do it, keep on, and he can perform the miraculous for you.